O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he, gave, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthens and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygra and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we, we hear them, and they're telling us in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Well, greetings, friends. You probably wouldn't believe me, judging by the uh, number of passages that we read, that if I said that I had a short word for us from the book of Acts, might attempt to preach the entire book. But go ahead and get your Bibles out to the book of Acts. If you have a Bible app, fire that up. Or if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is James. I'm the singles and discipleship pastor here at the Heights, filling in for Randy. And I'm hoping that in our time together, we'll do a couple of things. One, I'm hoping that we'll get to see something kind of cool from the book of Acts. And two, I'm hoping that that will color maybe the way we approach our Christian living, maybe color the way we approach the Lord in this coming year. So we'll go ahead and get to Acts, and we'll start in chapter 2. And when we look at the book of Acts, it's one of the most unique books in the Bible. When we come to Acts, Jesus has lived, died, and has been raised. And the book of Acts introduces us to the people that are the product of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We're being introduced to the Christian community. And so if you're a follower of Christ, this is your spiritual heritage. This is the story of our people. And it's important because in a unique way, it, it tells us what sort of people this people is to be. So there are a couple of ways that you can learn about any given thing. You can receive information about it, or on the other hand, you can see it in action and you can experience it. Or as one popular TV character put it, you don't go to a science museum in order to be handed a pamphlet on electricity. You go to the science museum, you put your hand on a metal ball, your hair sticks up, and you know science. And a lot of us maybe would equate reading one of the New Testament letters with being handed a pamphlet on Christianity. And, and I don't know if that's the best way to understand what's going on there, but it makes sense. You know, there are explanations, there are, there, there are uh, principles and, and information. But there's no doubt when we come to the book of Acts that what we're looking at is Christianity in motion. And as we watch how things travel and collide and connect in the book of Acts, as the story unfolds, we get to see what sort of people this Christian community is intended to be, what sort of people we ought to be. And as the story of Acts unfolds, you get the sense that a, a central element in the Christian identity, that, that part of the DNA of a Christian, is surrender. 
Because what the book of Acts is, is showing us, what the gospel tells us, is that because of the work of Jesus, if you're in Christ, your story has been caught up into God's story. So one of the best things that you can do is adopt this posture of surrender. So everybody, clench your fist, put them up, clench fist, clench fist, clench fist, clench it real hard. I'll let you know when to let them go. This is why this is so important. Because the society that we live in often thinks that the only way things get accomplished is through white knuckles. Now, if anything is going to get done, it's going to be through your own resolve, through your own motivation, through your own determination. And don't misunderstand me. The Bible has plenty to say to commend hard work, to commend committing yourself to whatever it is that you're doing. But if your story has indeed been caught up into God's story, then one of the best postures, if he's in the driver's seat, is to surrender. So on the count of three, I want everybody to open your hands slowly and say surrender. One, two, three, surrender. Because... If God's in the driver's seat, then we have to have this willingness, this readiness at a moment's notice to let him go whatever direction he pleases. And so surrender is, is essential. And the snapshots that we're going to look at from this book of Acts, the snapshots that we read in these passages are going to help us understand why that's so important. It's going to help us understand what God will do in the midst of that surrender. And so if you're clever, you may have caught how those four passages, how those four scenes are tied together. The first reading in the book of Acts in chapter 1 Jesus tells his disciples, he, he's risen from the grave, and he's told his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Concentric circles. You're going to take this gospel message out to the ends of the earth. And then each of those snapshots that we read after that were the beginning of each one of those waves. The beginning of the gospel going out to Jerusalem. The beginning of the gospel going out to Judea and Samaria. The beginning of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And what you see in those snapshots, as this, as this mission unfolds, you very quickly come to the conclusion that this is not a story about a band of believers who launched this movement through their own resolve and their own determination. Very quickly, you start to understand that this is, this is God. What we're seeing is God acting out his story and taking his children along for the ride something that he's, he's still willing to do. And as we see how the gospel goes out in each one of those waves— we start to understand why surrender is so important. And the reason why surrender is so important, three reasons, is because in the midst of that surrender, God will do things you couldn't, use things you wouldn't, and change your plans. So you avid note takers, those are your points. God will do things you couldn't, use things you wouldn't, and change your plans. So first, Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 2 if you're not there already. And we're going to see this first snapshot of the gospel going out to Jerusalem. All right, so in, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the grave, and he, and he tells his disciples that you're going to be my witnesses. And so, so the, the, this, this grand plan, this grand scheme, we're going to reach the world and change the world. What's the first step for the disciples? And do, do they go and collaborate on a church planning strategy, or, or, or do they go and beat the streets of Jerusalem with their evangelism tools? Or do they immediately busy themselves? No. No, they go and wait. Luke doesn't include this at the beginning of Acts, but at the, at the end of his gospel account in Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, you go and wait. You wait for me, and I will give you what you need to accomplish this mission. You'll be clothed with power from on high. So you, you, you just wait on me. So the, the first step in this incredibly ambitious plan to change the world is to go and sit in a room. Not very exciting, huh? But I wonder, with, with all the grand plans that are represented in this room, how many of our plans would be better served by spending more time sitting in a room waiting on the Lord? Right, so he, he, he tells his disciples to, to wait on him here in Acts chapter 2. And often waiting on the Lord should be the very first step that we take in all of our endeavors. 
But very often we live by the maxim, when all else fails, pray. Which reflects a very, a very shallow, superstitious, almost, if not non-existent faith, where I'm going to try everything that really works, and if all of that doesn't work, then it couldn't hurt to pray. Now, that doesn't reflect the belief that your story has been caught up into God's story and that he acts within his story. Not only can he do great things, he can do more than you could have even thought to ask. I mean, look what happens with the disciples. They're sitting in this room waiting on the Lord, and all of a sudden God's spirit rushes in and equips them in this miraculous way from the mission. And all of a sudden these guys are proclaiming the gospel in French. And so it says in, in, Acts, chapter, in Acts chapter 2, starting in, in verse 6, that at this sound, the sound of the disciples, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, now, can you imagine if the disciples, full of zeal, full of resolve, wanting to do what Jesus had told them to do, would have breezed out into the streets of Jerusalem and hadn't waited on the Lord? You can almost drum up this mental picture of a disciple looking at this out-of-towner saying, ah, he's, he, he's not getting it. Jesus died for your sins. No, no, he doesn't speak a lick of Greek. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, we're going to have to pull together funds to, to hire a translator. I don't know where we're going to get the money. Jesus said we have to make disciples of all nations. We have to do this, so we'll figure something out. Do you think in that moment they would have thought to ask, you know, Lord, if I could miraculously know this dude's language, that would be really nice right now. No, no, they probably wouldn't have asked for that. That's, that's outside the bounds of reason. But that's, that's not how it happened. They, they, they waited on the Lord. They waited on the Lord. And as they waited, he came in and he did what they couldn't. More than they could have asked for, exactly what was needed. Waiting on the Lord, that's a, that's a mark of surrender. That's a, that's a posture of surrender. But often we, don't, often we don't wait on the Lord. And we have this, this do-it-yourself attitude that puts resolve above surrender. And so as we creep up on January 1, as we creep up on a new year, we resolve to be a, maybe a better friend, a better spouse, a better parent, and to, to, to have more wisdom, to, to, to be more bold, to be more kind, to be more patient, any number of good things. But we don't weave into that resolve a commitment to regularly wait on the Lord, to ask Him to do the things that we can't. And many of us have seen how God shows up when you do wait on him, how he, how he does the things you couldn't, how he, he opens a door right when you needed it, how he puts a person in your path right when they needed it, right at the right place, right at the right time. How God gives you that peace, that patience, that, that composure right in the right moment. But we don't always avail ourselves of that. And so what we see in this first snapshot as the, the gospel begins to go out into Jerusalem is that Surrender is so important because in the midst of that surrender, as we wait on the Lord, God will do the things that you couldn't. But, so that's the first thing, that surrender is important because God will do the things you couldn't. Second, we see that surrender is important because God will do the things, or will use things that you wouldn't. So flip over to Acts chapter 1, or excuse me, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And we're going to see the beginning of the gospel getting ready to go out into Judea and Samaria. Did anybody catch when we were reading, or just in your own personal study, have you ever caught what it is exactly that pushes the gospel out into Judea and Samaria? You know, again, it wasn't the wisdom and wit of the, the disciples. What exactly was it that pushed the gospel out into Judea and Samaria? It's a Baptist church. I don't know if we're allowed to holler at the preacher. Persecution. Somebody over here said it. It was, it was persecution. And it's such a small statement. In, in Acts chapter 7, we have our first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then starting in chapter 8, in the second half of verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
It's such a small statement that you can breeze right past it and not realize that this is the first time that Judea and Samaria are mentioned ever since the mandate in chapter 1 from Jesus. And so what's reflected in this this very small, easy-to-miss statement is that in the midst of this uprising against the plans and purposes of Jesus for his followers, the plans and purposes of Jesus for his followers are being accomplished as the gospel seed is scattered from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. God takes all that, I'm going to take all this momentum from this persecution, and now the gospel is going out to Judea and Samaria. God's a boss. Do you think think that when the the disciples came together to talk about their missionary strategy, that get persecuted was at the top of that list? Can you imagine the the pastors of this church getting together and saying, how can we mobilize and motivate our people to go into the neighboring regions, the, the, the surrounding counties and, and, and share the gospel. Go beyond their local context. If only we could find somebody to start hunting them down. Well, no, no, nobody in their right mind is going to build that into the plan. Nobody in their right mind is going to wish that on somebody else and certainly not themselves. And besides, that's way beyond the realm of your control. But God is in control of everything. He's sovereign in the midst of every circumstance. He sees everything coming down the line, and it's well within his character to use the evil intentions of people and life's difficult circumstances, and right in the middle of that, as we see in Judea and Samaria, to accomplish his purposes and to shape you and me into the people that he wants us to be. And you can can pull up every sermon that you've ever heard on Romans 8.28 and the life of Joseph, right? I think one of the reasons why God often uses the bad circumstances, because he can work in the midst of good and bad, right? But there's nothing like persecution. There's nothing like an obnoxious person. There's nothing like difficult circumstances to really build patience, kindness, humility, all those good virtues. So he can can use either one, but we see how that's at play in Judea and Samaria. But what if the gospel, what uh, what if the disciples would have shut down? What if, what if, since they don't have a God's eye view, in the midst of this resistance, what if they would have said, oh, well, forget this. No, I mean, here I am trying to do what's right. Let the listener understand. Here I am trying to do what's right, trying to do what God's called me to do. And this happens? Is this how this person's going to react? This is how this situation unfolds? I'm trying to do what's right, and everything's just going to the trash can. No, I'm going home. What if the disciples, because they they didn't realize, remember, we saw this is what's pushing the plan out. This persecution is what's sending the gospel out to Judea and Samaria, the next realm of this plan. What if because they couldn't see that, they would have packed it up and gone home as if God can't possibly be working in the midst of this situation? I I wonder if that's not so often what, what kills our resolve. You know, we commit ourselves to being a better this or to doing that better, and as soon as we meet resistance of some kind, we get totally deflated and tap out as if God couldn't possibly be working in the midst of that difficult person or that difficult circumstance. Now, of course he is. Of course he is. And even in the midst of that, as you walk in obedience, as you surrender, God's using that, that difficult person, that, that circumstance, that event, to accomplish his plan with you, through you, and for you. So, so what we see in this, this, this surprising way in which the gospel is going out to Judea and Samaria is the reality that, that God will use things that you wouldn't, that we need to be surrendered because God will use people, events, and circumstances that we and all of our resolve probably never would have. But we have to be surrendered enough to put our hands up and say, Lord, whatever comes at me as, as I strive towards this goal, whatever comes at me, I'll walk in obedience. 
And so we need to be surrendered because God will do things you couldn't, use things you wouldn't. And the last thing we're going to see in this final snapshot of the gospel going out is that God, as many of you know so well, will change your plans. So flip over to Acts chapter 16. We're going to see this last wave of the gospel beginning to go out. But just to kind of time out for a second, you know, before we look at this last snapshot and, and to kind of pull all of these points together, there's probably fewer greater pictures of God doing things you couldn't, using things you wouldn't, and changing your plans in the entire Bible than Paul, than the Apostle Paul. Because when we look at this last snapshot of the gospel beginning to go out to the ends of the earth, the person leading that charge in this last snapshot is the person who in the, la- the previous snapshot was leading the persecution against the church. But God, Jesus came to him on the road one day, revealed himself to him, knocked him off his horse, changed his heart, changed his name, and sent him on mission. And so just to, just to beat that dead horse about God using difficult people and circumstances, you know, just, just to make sure it's thoroughly dead, don't ever think that there's anybody in your life whom God cannot knock off their horse and change their heart. That's exactly why Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, to to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Because God can change anybody's heart. And they might become a mightier witness than you. Right? So, okay, time in. We go to this last snapshot, Acts chapter 16. The gospel's going to the ends of the earth. Right? And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 16, what we heard in the account that was read, is the gospel, a church is getting ready to get planted on a new continent. Right? A lot of the missionary activity has been uh, around the, the Mediterranean Sea, and so a lot in the Middle East over here. And so what's going to happen in this account is Paul is going to go and make the first disciples on the continent that we know as Europe, in, in a region called Macedonia, in a colony called Philippi. And that should probably sound familiar to most of us, because later Paul is going to write a letter to this church called the letter to the... Philippians. Okay, perfect. And it's going to be, first of all, we're going to learn that this is an incredible church. And when we read the letter to the Philippians, we realize that, man, this is a church that was partnering with Paul in really big ways. Big things were going on. It's a very encouraging letter. It has lots of verses that we love to cross-stitch. You know, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, I mean, gospel's going to a new continent. We have, you know, a great church, great New Testament book written out of this. Did you realize, did you notice at the very beginning of, of Acts 16 in verse 6 and 7, none of this was part of Paul's plan? Paul was trying to go east, and then the Spirit of God stopped him. And then Paul started kind of trying to head north, and the Spirit of God stopped him. So Paul kind of sits down for a second, and the Spirit of God sends him a vision of a guy in Macedonia calling out for help. And Paul does a 180 and starts heading west, and now we have the gospel on a new continent. And God leads the way. Good story, right? The only problem is, very often when God tries to change our plans, we don't always go down so easy. I have this picture of what it would have looked like if, uh, if Paul were a little more like us, this, this exchange between Paul and the Lord. Hey, I want you to go to Macedonia. I'm going to act like I didn't hear that. You got your stuff packed for uh, Asia? You still good? You got stuff? Okay. Hey, I want you to go to Macedonia. Macedonia, though? I mean, we're already in Asia. I could, I could just start walking that way, and we could be planting churches. It's, I mean, I'd have to, oh, we'd, have to, we'd have to cross that body of water. Oh, we'd have to get this shit. It's, just, it's not financially prudent, you know? We, we, the travel would cost too much. We're already here. And besides, all the churches that I planted are all kind of down here in this area. And so if I go and plant more churches over there, I can check up on all these baby churches. I mean, it would be irresponsible to neglect the baby churches, right? Okay. Uh, and also, why would I go all the way over there to make disciples and to plant churches where people don't know Jesus when there are plenty of people right here who don't know Jesus? Let the listener understand. Right? I mean, what, what, what that interaction with, with Paul and the Lord would have looked like if he wasn't so surrendered. 
You know, to use that illustration, I think that one of the reasons why a posture of surrender is so important is because often we can take the things that we resolve to do, maybe even good things, maybe even God things, and use them to drown out God's voice as he tries to lay something else on our heart. I wanted to give the Lord a few seconds of silence to bring that thing to mind if that's you. And we, we can take the good things that we resolve to do and use them to drown out God's voice. And you always know what that thing is because it's that thing that comes to mind that you either try to keep from coming to mind or you try to act like it didn't come to mind, right? It, it, might, be a, it might be a person in need. It might be an area of ministry. It might be confessing some sin. It might be forgiving somebody. But sometimes we can use those things that we resolve to do and use them as, as, as distractions and excuses from the things that God, are, God is calling us to do, the things that God is laying on our, on our heart. That's the problem with rigid resolutions. Now, I want you to go to Macedonia. Oh, well, I'm headed to Asia. But I want you to go to Macedonia. Yeah, but you, know, you said reach the ends of the earth, and Asia is a big part of the earth. Yes, but I want you to go to Macedonia. What, what might Macedonia be for you? What's that thing that God maybe is trying to throw you a curveball, maybe change your plans a little bit. Friends, the good that you do is no longer good if it's used as an excuse from the good that God is trying to lay on your heart. And the good that you do is no longer good if it's used as a distraction from that thing that God is trying to lay on your heart, maybe even right now. And we spent several weeks, Randy has led us through the book of Mark, great series, and we spent several weeks talking about the worth of Jesus and the cost of following him. You know what the, the most challenging part is about when God throws you a curveball and tries to change your plans? It's easier, it's often easier to take a step in following Christ when the cost for that step has been calculated, anticipated, you have time to, to warm up to it, to, to, to get used to it and embrace it. It's very difficult then when God flips things around on you and calls you to take a step in that following, the cost of which you've had no time to embrace. You haven't had any time to warm up to it. You haven't had any time to anticipate it. You, know, you were ready to pay that cost, but you weren't ready to pay that cost. But, but true surrender means that you, you're willing to follow the Lord no matter what he lays on your heart, even when he changes your plans, even when he calls an audible. Now, this, this, this snapshot of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth is the perfect picture of the fact that God often has good plans for you that you weren't planning on. And there might be a cost associated with it. It might, it might cost a little bit to get to Macedonia, but, but often God has good plans for you that you weren't planning on. And in order to be caught up into those good plans, you have to be surrendered enough to put your hands up and say, wherever you lead, wherever you lead, that's where I'm going. That's what we see in this, this last snapshot. And I'm, I'm confident that if you adopt this posture of surrender, that God will do things you couldn't, use things you wouldn't, and change your plans. What that will be for you, what that will look like, I have no idea. But, but can I suggest a, a few avenues for surrender, a way, ways of cultivating this, this posture of, of surrender? And they're not going to blow your mind. You're going to expect to have heard them at church. But, but plunging yourself more deeply into prayer, into God's word, into God's people. I, I think... I think prayer and God's word kind of connect. We connect the dots a little easy, easier on that. And when we think about God putting things on your heart and, and changing your plans, I think that maybe the prayer and the Bible are involved in that picture that comes to mind. And when we talk about, uh, when we talk about waiting on the Lord, 
I, I think that prayer and the Bible are, are a part of that picture that comes to mind. We, we connect those dots fairly easily. But we so overlook sometimes God's people in, in many different regards, but even as an, as an avenue for surrender. You know, when we talk about God doing things you couldn't, often he does that through a person. You know, he, he puts a person in your path at the right place at the right time, or maybe you've been that person for somebody else. And when we talk about God using things you wouldn't, that's church, man. You could sit in here every week and say, I wouldn't use that guy. I wouldn't use that guy. I don't know who that kid is up there, who let him, but I wouldn't use him. I don't like anything he's saying. You know, or, or maybe like Randy said at the beginning of the, the Mark sermon series, maybe you've put yourself on the sideline, you've put yourself on the bench. Maybe you kind of haven't, haven't dived into to Christian community because you think, oh, oh what do I have to offer? You know, when, when, God, when I say that God will use things you wouldn't, that includes you. you know, he, he wants to use you, so, so dive deep into connection. Get in a life group. Make close friends. Serve one another. When we talk about God changing your plans, nothing will change your plans like a person. Now, there's a World War II era pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote this book about Christians doing life together called Life Together. And in the book, he says this. This is a, this is a line from, from Bonhoeffer's book. He says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will constantly, uh, will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions, which is a really eloquent way of saying he's going to change all of our plans by putting a lot of needy people together. I'm not needy. Yes, you are. You're just also in denial. The world's broken. You have needs. And what for you in that moment, in the, in the crossing of paths and the changing of plans, what for you might be a change of plans? You know, point, point three. For that person in that moment, man, that might be point one. God, God doing what they couldn't, meeting that need, answering that prayer. That's why diving deep into life together is so central to this whole picture. But when we talk about all these things, when we talk about this posture of surrender and the way God's going to act in that, all this really only applies to, to the child of God, to the follower of Jesus. And so if you haven't taken that step in, in following Christ and putting your trust in him, the first act of surrender that God would have for you would be to trust his son and to see what life is like when God is king. And it, it can be a scary thing. I, I, don't, don't misunderstand me. It can be a very scary thing. It means you're not in the driver's seat anymore. It can, be, it can be scary when you're taking your first step in following Christ. It can be a scary thing when you're taking your 50th step in following Christ. It can be an intimidating thing for those who are sitting in their seats, intimidated by you know, wrestling with whether or not they're going to trust God, surrender to God by putting their faith in Christ for the very first time. And it can also be intimidating for the person who is sitting in their seat, wrestling with whether or not they're going to surrender to the change of plans that God has been laying on their heart, that thing, that pesky thing that keeps popping up in the back of your mind. You know, it, 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 it never stops being scary. But friends, the, the, the sweetest thing about the gospel is that this God that you're surrendering to understands surrender. Because our God in Jesus, put on human flesh, became God with us, all the things that we celebrate during the Christmas season. And as his father's plans led him to the cross, he said, not my will, but yours be done. We, can, we, can we do this a different way, but, but not my will, yours be done, as he went to the cross for you and I. And so not only does God's own surrender in Jesus afford us the opportunity to surrender where we wouldn't otherwise. There would be no opportunity to become a child of God, to take these steps. Not only does this, his own surrender purchase our opportunity to surrender, but it lets us know that God understands surrender. He doesn't take it lightly. He doesn't play games with us. 
and that we can trust him with our own because he surrendered first. And so as this, this new year creeps up on us, as January 1 comes, man, resolve to do something good, something worthwhile. Resolve to do something from the Bible. But, but walk with God. Hold on to everything with loose hands except Jesus, including your plans and your resolutions. And in light of the fact that God will do things you couldn't, use things you wouldn't, and change your plans, in light of the fact that in Christ, God surrendered for us first, resolve to surrender. Let's pray. Father, I think on our best days, these truths are too big for us. And, and we know that the more that we see of your truth, the more that we will be able to be for you. And so I pray that through your spirit, that you would work on our hearts, that you would, you would work these truths deep into our hearts, that we would be able to see more and more what it meant for you in Jesus to have surrendered for us. And I pray as we see that, as we're encouraged by that, as we're compelled by that, we will be more willing to surrender to you in every area of life, even when you're going to change our plans, to always wait on you. I pray that it would build us into a closer people with one another. I pray that it would build us into a more effective people and a people that looks more like your son. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.